Hello, everybody. It's in the Pop Movie Cast. I am Chuck Conyers. And I am Jose Joel Zulueta. Welcome. This is a very special episode because Mr. Zulueta gets the fanboy out about his <laughs> favorite movie director, Stanley Kubrick. This is the. Stanley Kubrick! This is the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's nuts. That movie's 50 yeah. years old. And it doesn't seem like it either. Uh, I, I just saw it yesterday, and yeah. I have to say, the special effects still hold up pretty well. It is really movie. a clean movie. There's like no matte lines or anything. It could have been shot yesterday. I swear. Yeah, um, it's 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 very obsessive in um, in methodical in the way it's shot, uh, especially the models. Um, you know, it's um, it's a it's a gorgeous movie. Uh, they, this is one of those films where they say you could take any frame from the film and you can hang it on your wall. You know, just a, mm -hmm. a beautifully shot, well-made motion picture. And the thing about this movie that really stands out is that you could tell that Kubrick did his research. He did his homework because science fiction films up to this time, they portrayed like the planet Earth as like really, you know, it looks like a model or something. But uh, Kubrick must have uh, gotten photographs straight from nasa of uh the planet earth you know and the uh, the cloud formations and everything like that and it looks it looks authentic the uh the planet earth looks authentic the moon looks authentic and even jupiter and this is before we have the hubble space telescope he was basically uh working from uh probably probably like uh blurry photographs of jupiter and it, it's like and he just made it work you know i was totally convinced even today like in 20 in the year 2018 i'm watching this movie and it just looks totally accurate which is amazing yeah absolutely this is the first science fiction film that i ever saw where i where it it took it, it i mean it was serious it was it took science fiction very seriously you know it was uh you know down to the 20-minute sequence of the ship docking. <laughs> yeah, there's about... Um, it's funny, there's... Um, we can get into a little bit about the... Um, little bit, but particulars about the movie, but it's, it's basically... Right. There's kind of like, what, three or four stories told in this film? Yeah, there are. That, um, that make up this story. And um, one of the... In one of the stories... Basically, the uh, character lands at a space station, makes a phone call, has a meeting, goes to the moon, another space station, <laughs> goes for a walk. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very, like, you know, when you break it down like that, it's just like yeah, the guy does nothing. But, like, a lot happens. <laughs> a lot is happening in, in that um in that sequence, but that is that's that is a lot of the movie though. A lot of the movie is the mundane within this fanciful type environment. That's a pretty good observation. Yes, I was thinking the very same thing. If you were to like read a script of this movie, you would think that this that the dialogue is as boring as hell because they're talking about oh well how's your trip here or or, or remember you know like he's talking to the uh, Russian scientist well you have to visit us in the United States sometimes you know and yeah it was very like small that. it's very small talky it's it which is and it's 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 hard to stage small talk you know having you know having said that but it's just definitely just kind of like this awkward you know passing ships in the night kind of thing they, they they're familiar with each other and they're kind yeah. of catching up but it's a little awkward because you know one of the, the the russian gentleman is asking too many questions or i guess is asking questions that uh the american is not willing to no not the he's not an american is he american uh yeah okay i i think he is 
um, is just not willing to answer. Uh, Dr. Floyd, I hope you don't think I'm being too inquisitive, but perhaps you can clear up the great big mystery about what has been going on up there. I'm afraid I don't know what you mean. Well, it's just that for the past uh, two weeks, some extremely odd things have been happening at Clevis. Oh, really? Yes, oh, yes, yes. Well, for one thing, whenever you phone the base, all you can get is a recording which repeats that the phone lines are temporarily out of order. Well, uh, probably having some trouble with their equipment or something like that. Yes. Yes, that's what we thought was the explanation at first, but it's been going on now for the past ten days. You mean you haven't been able to contact anyone for the past ten days? That's right. Oh, I see. Well, there's another thing, Haywood. Two days ago, one of our rocket buses was denied permission for emergency landing at Clavius. Well, that does sound odd. Yes, yes. yes I'm afraid there's going to be a bit of a row about it. Denying the men permission to land is a direct violation of the IAS convention. Yes, of course, of course. Will the crew get back all right? Yes, yes, fortunately they did. Oh, I'm glad about that. <sighs> Dr. Floyd, at the risk of... Uh, Pressing you on a point you seem reticent to discuss. May I ask you a straightforward question? Well, certainly. Qu quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out at Clevis. Something apparently of an unknown origin. This is, in fact, what has happened. Sorry, Dr. Smith-Love, but uh, I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. I understand. But this epidemic could quite easily spread to our base. Uh, we should be given all the facts, Dr. Floyd. Yes, I, I know. As I said, I'm not at liberty to discuss it. And it makes for a very awkward exchange, especially towards the end. Uh, again, you know, a mundane conversation. It's it's almost shot. It's almost like one shot. <laughs> the two of the, of the it's like uh, about four of them maybe having this conversation. Yes, I think that's part of the genius of this movie is that uh, that they managed to like inject a little bit of realism mm. into such a fantastical. Uh, well, to to the 1960s, it's kind of like a fantastical realm, you know. It's the future, and um, in many ways, this movie is—it's almost as if the movie was like a product of the year 2001, and it somehow managed to find its way to 1968. Mm. I think that's kind of like what the approach that Kubrick was trying to make, mm. even with the. Uh, if you notice in the very beginning, right before the movie plays, they show the MGM logo. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like really futuristic looking. Okay. You know, it's like, because typically the MGM logo would have the, uh, would have the lion kind of roaring to the screen, but they've got like this, this blue and white logo, which we've never ever seen before. Oh, is that true? That was yeah. new to that movie? That was unique yeah. to that movie? Oh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. think they've ever used it again, did they? I, I, I don't know. I didn't know that. I never thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. It's a very interestingly shot movie because, uh, and not just the dialogue is kind of like ordinary and boring, but there's, but most of the movie is no dialogue. Especially the beginning, the opening of the movie, um, which is dubbed uh, the Dawn of Man, which you yeah. can surmise takes place millions of years in the past, probably in Africa. And uh, that is the story of um, these, uh, what would you call them, humanoid? They were not really human, oh, they're um, maybe hominids. Thank you. Okay, there you uh, go. Uh, is that the right term, hominids? Hominids. Uh, <laughs> I'll do a Mark Zuckerberg and say I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they um, that and that's a very simple story in in the first part. It's basically this one tribe that has this watering hole, and another tribe basically comes over and says, "We want that watering hole." And they push away the first tribe. 
and they go to another area where all of a sudden this monolith shows up. It just appears there, and mm-hmm. it you know it freaks them all out. And after they have contact with it, they make this discovery of using a bone as a weapon, as a as something that you can use to destroy things, which is what they use to get their watering hole back. They defeat the bullying tribe. And then the the leader, the one with the bone, the one that did the beating, the one that makes the discovery, does this kind of like victorious roar and then throws the bone up into the sky. And that very famous juxtaposition between that bone and a satellite, I would assume. Yeah, the uh, the spaceship. Yeah. Right. That would, that is what you would call the ultimate jump cut. Yeah. <laughs> Millions of years later. Yeah, it's very, um, that's, a, that's something he would use again in Full Metal Jacket somewhat. Oh, okay, you've got me there. Which, uh, which part? Well, when they go from, um, basic training to, they're, then they're in the shit. Oh, yeah, that's right. There that's lo- right. There were a lot of people at the time that were very confused by that, because it seemed like the movie was about one thing. And then it veers off, and then another story starts up. Or so that's how people were interpreting that. Oh, interesting. But um, with this film, I mean, it's weird. I don't know, because I can kind of remember back to when I saw it, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I was that confused. But what did you think of that the first time you saw it? The the the, I... the bone to spaceship jump cut. Oh, I totally got it right away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not that hard to understand, I don't think. (laughs) Yeah, I liked it. It's like the bone was uh, primitive man's technology. And then it's like thousands of years later, technology takes us to the stars. Or, I'm sorry, to different planets. Yeah. Yeah, um, okay, uh, I've, I've never read the book. I'm assuming you haven't read the book either. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, one of those books I've always wanted to read, I just never got around to it. I, I think I may have started it once. Uh, uh, Frank Herbert... No, 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 this is um, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Um, yeah, Arthur C. Clarke, um, I'm not too... I, I couldn't even tell you what this read like. I, I don't remember. I really don't. Mm. So I'm going to say, yeah, I didn't read the book either. Okay. Um, but the monolith, that's the big question. What is it? Um, yeah. It's, um, I, is, it, it, I mean, it, it clearly um, influenced um, the evolution of man. It was uh, pointing... Or communicating or, or directing mankind to this gateway near Jupiter to create a new being. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, we're we're kind of jumping around here, folks. So, but that um, but you but you're asking what the monolith? Is. I mean, that's I. It's an it's an alien. I I'm I'm a guess, I'm guessing it's an alien artifact that was used to communicate with man and ultimately merge with man to create a, a, a new being. Uh, oh, wow. I mean, what did, what did you think? What do you think it is? Oh, boy. It's, uh, that's the thing I really didn't get about this movie. Okay, okay so basically the plot is about... Um, Scientists back on Earth, they discover uh, they discover this monolith that seems to be beaming a signal from from the moon to somewhere in Jupiter. That's right. 
So they send over uh, a small group of scientists mm. and, and an artificial machine called the HAL 9000. And they head over to Jupiter kind of as a side story. I, uh, it's, a, it's a major side story. But the, uh, the AI known as HAL kind of goes uh, haywire and kills off most of the crew. Wasn't able to kill off this one, uh, the pilot. Dave Bowman, who manages to unlink Hal from the ship and kind of like uh, kind of like puts him out of commission, and then uh, so Bowman goes on by himself, goes into Jupiter, sees a monolith, and then all sorts of crazy colors come flying at him. <laughs> right, it's sort of like a sort of like an elephant. <laughs> Making fun. <laughs> I'm not. I love it. I think it's great. Did you see? Um, did you see Twin Peaks: The Return? Uh, I haven't. I haven't. The, uh, I want to. I mean, that, that's definitely on my list of things to watch. The most talked it, about episode of that um, of that run, and again, it is quite possibly. One of the most brilliant things that have, no, not quite possibly. It is one of the most brilliant things that has ever been on television. That season of Twin Peaks, it is brilliant. Really, episode eight, dude. It, it's pretty <laughs> much. I I would say half of the episode plays out like that gateway sequence in two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Showtime gave this dude untold millions of dollars. I don't even know how much it cost <laughs> to make this like super expensive art film. It's, it's <laughs> crazy. It, it just goes. Um, it goes in places that you don't see on television typically. Wow. And it really did. It was like watching the end of two thousand one with Space Odyssey. It's that trippy. Yep. Now. What do you think? We we haven't talked we haven't talked really about what you thought that monolith was. Yeah, it's almost metaphorical. It seems that big black monolith kind of appears to be like some kind of doorway, almost. Mm. You know, it's all black, and you can make out a side to it. And uh, the way it looks on the screen. You know, it's like uh, the scenery. Sometimes it's like uh, against the rocks, and it's against the uh, the lunar landscape, mm-hmm. and it's like and it appears like in this in this old Napoleonic era room. Mm-hmm. It looks like something that you could walk into. So um, it's a gateway, or it's a yeah, it's a gateway. It's a gateway. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, well, for, for in terms of like the movie's plot, maybe it's a gateway into like some other dimension. Is it? Or I would say, I'm not really sure, but um, yeah, that's basically what the room that he's in uh-huh. uh, at the end of the movie. That's the other dimension, and he basically basically gets old and, and dies in that in that room. Uh, that's where mm-hmm. he spends the rest of his life. 
then he, I guess his spirit or his soul merges with the being and they create a new life, I guess. <laughs> hmm. Because that's what the, 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 you know, the floating fetus in the sky or the, the floating fetus in space, uh -huh. you know, that's the new life. That's the new being. Hmm. What did you think it was? Oh, boy, I thought that was... <laughs> okay, so it's a new life form. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know he um, I didn't know he merged with, like, another alien life form. Huh. Ooh. I mean, that's what I think. I mean, look, I yeah. I have never done a, a huge deep dive into this movie. I've, I've never read the book. And they don't really they don't really spell it out for you what happens in this movie. They it it, it's, it shows you things that are happening, and you kind of just have to take it all in and make the best assumption you can make based on that. <laughs> well, you know, I I really don't think the book would have more information than the movie because I think. Both were written at the same time. The script and the book were were being uh, made at the same time, I believe. Yeah, that's right. The um, book came out after the movie did. It has a lot of. Uh, I mean, outside of the cryptic storytelling, um, there are a lot of very iconic scenes in it. You had mentioned the um, the deactivation sequence. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. But I can assure you now, very confidently, that it's going to be all right again. I feel much better now. I really do. Look, Dave. I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. Hearing this machine's casual kind of uh, pleading for its life, yeah. you know, it's... it's um, I mean, outside the calculation of determining that the humans may very well be jeopardizing the mission, which the computer is programmed to do, is not programmed to deviate from the mission. So in order to keep with the mission, ended up doing some really, you know, uh, uh, horrible things. To see this machine or to hear this machine express like, terror and fear, but in the most kind of... No. Please, stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? Just yeah. monotone, no emotion in the voice, but very mm -hmm. emotional in the words being used, the the pleading, um, uh, talking about the mind. My mind is going. 
and then reverting back to the first time it spoke and then the and the Daisy song. It's a if you were to read the script, it would basically say uh, Dave powers down the machine. <laughs> but it is yeah. played out in this very dramatic way, you know what I mean? It's and um yeah. it's a really wonderful scene. Yeah, it's very powerful. I mean, how could you not feel for Hal? It's almost like an old person going through dementia or something. That's right. Yeah, it's it's you feel pity for for Hal, even though he killed the scientists, even though he killed uh oh Gary Lockwood. That's the name of the actor who uh, who got cut off. Yeah. During the uh, repair. Um, I thought. I thought Hal is just—he uh, was a terrific villain. <laughs> he was just, because his voice was just so calm and soothing, and he was doing all these horrible things. Yes, and the lip reading scene I thought was great. Oh man, that is one hell of a place to put an intermission on. Because <laughs> uh, I swear, it's like if I was—if uh, I had seen that in the theaters when it was released and. Oh man, my head would have exploded. Because, wow, <laughs> the lip reading. Oh, they are in for it. That's right. Stanley yeah. Kubrick is. I I must say that was that reminded me of something that Alfred Hitchcock would do. Like that is definitely an element of suspense. That um, if Alfred Hitchcock was making a, a, a telling a story about a, a machine that kind of goes rogue, you could imagine something like this happen. Like I was saying earlier, there are maybe about three or four stories that make up this film. And um, I guess you could say the first story is Dawn of Man. The second story is uh, The Monolith on the Moon. The right. third story is Hal and Dave Bowman making the journey into the uh, star. Jupiter. Is the fourth story, I guess you could say. Yes. So is this the story of mankind? Is that is that the protagonist of of this film? The story of mankind evolving into a different life form. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it, I guess it all fits because uh, we're. I mean, just look at the title, two thousand and one. Yeah. It's the beginning of a new era. Don't you love how these older films, they's like, oh my God, by the year 2000, they'll be flying <laughs> to the moon and we'll be uh, vacationing yeah. on Mars and yeah. all this shit. It, like, yeah, we're, uh, according <laughs> to this movie, uh, 17 years ago, Pan Am was doing uh, space flights <laughs> to a space station orbiting um, the Earth. <laughs> um, with uh, transferring flights to a lunar base. Yeah. According to 1960s uh, projections of the future. Mm -hmm. None of yeah. that happened. None of that happened. I think the closest we have to that right now is um, Richard Branson's, uh, what was it called? <laughs> a Virgin Galactic. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Richard Branson's Virgin of Galactic. That's about as close as we have to that, and I don't think he even started flights yet. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we're we're not quite as adventurous as the uh, the world portrayed in two thousand and one. Adventurous, my ass! I mean, we're not even <laughs> we're not even close. <laughs> we are nowhere near close to any of that stuff. I always feel that. All of the older films who, that project about the future should add an extra um, hundred years. Yes. You know, so was, it should be 2101, A Space Odyssey. I was just thinking of that. Yeah. yeah. Blade Runner. But it wouldn't be, would be as cool sounding as 2001. Yeah. But it would be more accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but who wants to see twenty one oh one? I guess kind of an odd number, you know. I mean, two thousand and one. Well, that sounds a little bit better. Rolls off the tongue. I mean, look, Blade Runner takes place in the year two thousand seventeen. 
<laughs> when was the last time you saw a replicant uh, from an off-world <laughs> colony? You see what I mean? If it was 2117, then maybe that's a little believable. Even 2117, when all things considered, like 100 years, I don't think 100 years from now, there will be um, aliens mining off-world colonies. I would probably give that maybe two or 300 years. <laughs> How you doing, everybody? This is Chuck Conyers, the one half of the Cinepod movie cast. Hey, listen, are you looking for something new to read? Afrofuturism has finally reached the mainstream, and there are a lot of great stories out there that look at the diaspora in a completely different way. I remember growing up, a lot of kids would talk about what they would do if they could go back in time, and one of the things was go back and kill Hitler to prevent the Holocaust. I used to think about, what if you could go back in time and prevent African slavery from happening? Well, that little thought experiment morphed into what is now available for purchase in Amazon, iTunes, anywhere you buy books, The Maximilian Emancipation. On August 8th, 2041, three African slave ships travel through the space-time continuum and end up off the coast of New York and New Jersey. A group of experts come in to see if they can figure out what the hell is going on. Is this a hoax? Is this an act of God? Or is this something else? The Maximilian Emancipation's a fun, satirical look at time travel. And it's getting good reviews, too. Here's one that says, For Conyers' first ever novel, I'm very impressed. The premise is fascinating and well told. See, that's a good one. Here's another one. With budding narrative world-building skills worthy of a strong hat tip from a Terry Pratchett or Harry Turtle dub. Look at that. Mr. Conyers is a tour de force taking us on a journey through the civilizations of Earth that could have been had the monumental human sin of the industry of slavery been diverted from taking hold. Ooh la la, very fancy. So if you're interested in picking this up, you can get the paperback at Amazon, as well as the Kindle version. You can also go to iTunes, Kobo, any place that you typically get your ebooks. You can also go to stopslaverywithtimetravel.com and you can find links to all the books, all the versions of the book. There's a PDF version you can buy from the site directly from me. And also, this is the first in a series of three books. The second book, called World Time, will be out this summer. Um, but stop, you can stop by the website, you can go on Amazon, check it out. It's called The Maximilian Emancipation. And now, let's get back to it. We're not talking about my futurism. We're talking about the futurism of um, your pal Stanley here now. Well, Stanley got a bunch of things right, too, though. Yeah. You have to say, Hal is, uh, I think we're approaching Hal type intelligence with uh but even with everyday things like siri or uh alexa alexa tell me about 2001 a space odyssey Everything is going. They're saying that voice, voice, and AI are the next frontiers, along with uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, mm -hmm. So there, are, there is some relevance, say, to um, 
the uh, movie that we love so much, uh, Ready Player One. You know that <laughs> you know this in the real world. That is uh, where the world is going, where technology is going. I mean, if you look around now, if you're walking through the streets of New York, uh-huh. you see people walking through the streets with their faces in their phones. You know, uh, everywhere you look, there are people. I sit on a train. I go into the city every day, and you look around, and everybody has their face in their phone or their iPad or or whatever they're using, whatever device. And the only thing that's separating Ready Player One from what what we're dealing with now is the visor. And that movie takes place... 30, about 30 years from now. So mm-hmm. we're not too far off from that world. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. You know, hopefully it will be a lot more fulfilling and a lot less disappointing than Ready Player One was. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, that's, you know, that that's, that's where, you know, that's where the world is, is going. Uh, and so when you look at Hal, I think it's probably the greatest technological takeaway that you can, um, that you have from this movie is this, um, uh, voice system that, you know, or interface that, um, helps you navigate the computer, run operations, you know, do all those things. It's, you know, without having to type in and and um have you know any kind of like haptic interface and they also have um you know they feature facetime in this movie where he takes the phone call with his daughter yeah you know um absolutely could you imagine using your phone and having like thank you for using at&t and then it transfers your call Oh, and, and they charged him too. Uh, it's like a dollar and seventy cents yep. for the uh, for the phone call, which is um, I think they did they do away with that these days now, right? It's like it's all charged to your card, and you don't see you really don't see the charge on the screen. So that's it's a it's funny because this movie, in a lot of ways, is very nineteen sixties. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's like no matter how much you try to hide it, it's like the <laughs> uh, the the 60s ish just comes out. That's right. No matter what, you know, like from the hairstyles to um yeah, to uh to little things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's I mean, even now, I mean, when you look at stuff now, when they try to make things look futuristic. What is futuristic to us now versus what was futuristic to us when we were eight years old, let's say, or 10 years old, or even before we were born, you know, when you look at people who look at science fiction, uh, of fantasy, who um, look at what life would be like maybe 100 years from their time or, or 200 years from their time, you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of um, illustrations from people done in like the early 1900s, the late 1800s, where they try to imagine what life would be like, you know, like in the future of 1970, you know. (laughs) And it was all, you know, they didn't really pay as much attention to the fashion as they did to the the technology around them, the machines and the and the stuff like that. I mean, I mean, how many movies do you see? Where in the, in the year two thousand, everyone's wearing jumpsuits and <laughs> and you know, uh, it, yeah. it, everyone looks like they're in a cult, you know, and nobody dresses yeah. like that. People are still wearing jeans, you know. People have been wearing jeans for over a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, so I mean, who's to say fashion would look any different? But it definitely doesn't look like the um, the the sixties look. <laughs> yeah. That you see, especially in the uh, in that meeting, that meeting sequence in that lounge. <laughs> yeah, and did you see, did you see the chairs that they were sitting on? Yeah, the the orange chairs that was like straight out of Clockwork Orange. Yeah, um, it's very sixties. Yeah, from the color, but yeah, I guess I shouldn't give them too much grief there because that it's hard to tell. It's really hard to forecast. Um, 
what people are going to wear in the future. You know, it's, it's hard to predict that. They've got some things right. You know, they've, uh, as you said, they've got um, they've got Skype, that kind of visual uh, telephone yeah. technology. They also have the iPhone. Oh, I'm sorry, the iPad. If you notice, uh, I think one of the astro- one of the astronauts had the iPad. Uh, they were looking at the news broadcast through uh, through a handheld device. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah 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 yeah. yeah that was yeah. pretty neat. Yeah. And I think to achieve that effect, that device was actually bolted down on the table, and they had like a like a television. Behind, it was like a, it was like this huge television set right underneath the table to make it look like a uh, small handheld device. That's crazy. I would have to say, uh, in terms of ranking this movie, I would I would say two thousand and one is maybe my fifth or sixth favorite Kubrick movie. Wow, that's that's yeah. Uh... It has to take a, uh, a backseat to like the likes of Doctor Strangelove or The Killing or The Glory. Mainly because uh, it's just not as much fun as those other movies. I see. I think, I think uh, 2001 is kind of like a turning point for Kubrick where he kind of takes himself a little too seriously. <laughs> and uh, it's like, and he borders on pretentious sometimes. Oh my what God. Oh, well, what do you. <laughs> oh my God, that's the. Yeah, un- did I just surprise you? The I understatement mean, uh... of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can tell there's black and white movies, you can tell I mean Doctor Strangelove has a couple of um flubs in it that he actually kept in the movie. Really? Yeah, yeah. Do you think George C. Scott fell on purpose? No, <laughs> get out of here. That really? was an accident. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love that moment. For some reason. I don't know why. But because was it was really real. Funny. It was real. That was a real moment. It's crazy. Oh, that's so cool. And the uh, the fellow playing the Russian that was in the war room, um, he was laughing during one of Peter Sellers' performances. Oh, I have to look out for that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess that was before he started doing like 87 takes on things and you know, oh my god! And that's the kind of bullshit where it's just like you know, you know, what the fuck? Yeah. I I mean, look, I I would love to get things in like two or three takes. I like I like two or three takes. If you're doing like four, five, six, seven, you know, there's there's a problem. There there's something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I had heard for this movie the shooting ratio was two hundred to one. No, it wasn't. Just stop. Yeah. Just stop. Yeah, that's what I heard. That's just Which fucking is... stupid. It's just stupid. Yeah. Why? There's a there's a um uh I think it was during um. Uh, maybe Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, there was a documentary about him that came out. And his daughter showed instructions that he left for taking care of his cats. <laughs> and it was something like 30 pages long. Oh, my of God. Things to do for his cat. And it's just like, you know, why? I don't, I mean, look. Uh, I. You think he's a control freak? You, uh, no, 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 <laughs> not at all. I don't think, I think he doesn't care enough. <laughs> I mean, dude, oh, what no, he's the a genius, but man, I, I would the not want to work for him. Oh yeah, I, I mean, okay, that's fine. He's made some great films, and 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 they're brilliant films. But I, but <sighs> how? <laughs> what is what is different between take fifteen and take forty two? What the fuck is... I mean, come on, man. The only thing you're going to get is pissed off actors at that point. Uh, I, I think Scatman Crothers, during the shooting of The Shining, actually broke down and cried. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> he was going, Mr. Kubrick, I don't know what you want. 
or worse to that effect. I can believe that. But see, that's fucked up. Why would you do that? Yeah. He treated um, Shelley Duvall like shit on The Shining. That's on film. Yeah. And, and but it's just like, you know, I see, I don't like that. I don't like the the mind games that uh um, you know, I I don't mind Poor Shelly Duvall. Yeah, exactly. And look, I don't mind a Jedi mind trick here or there, but if you're just crawling into someone's head and trying to make them miserable just so you can get a fucking moment in a movie, then that's just <laughs> that's just that's just lame. That's that's just fucked up. I don't care who the fuck you are. I don't care how brilliant everyone thinks you are. At that point, you're just a dick. Wow. I, you know, look. <laughs> I don't feel bad about calling Stanley Kubrick a dick. I don't care how many good movies he's made. I mean, I mean seriously. The dick who made Doctor Strange last. Yeah, well, this is again, he... look, Miles Davis beat his wives. He's made some beautiful music, but he's a wife-beating piece of shit. <laughs> All right. And we're going to talk about Bill Cosby now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <stop. laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> saying nothing of Bill Cosby or, or any of these controversial figures. Oh, uh, that's... Bill Cosby's a piece of crap. Yeah, what a bummer. Yeah, but hey, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Disappointing as hell. Yeah, so but you know we're not. I mean, Stanley Kubrick was not a piece of shit on that level by any means. But you know, again, the work speaks for itself. It's it's brilliant work. Yeah, the stories of how these things had to happen a little much. So, is this your favorite of his, or not even? Plus. Mm. It has a place in my heart because it's science fiction. I think it's his only science fiction film, if I'm not mistaken. Well, well he did do the story for AI. Technically, that's... Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that's his movie. It's more of a Spielberg movie, right? Yeah. I, I know um, that he well, that was supposed to be his last movie and not Eyes Wide Shut. Oh wow! Um, that would have been a totally different movie. Yeah, he was. He wanted to make uh, the. He wanted to make David as a puppet. He he had experimented. Uh, I think he even spoke to the Henson Company about building a David puppet, uh, but it just wasn't right. Then he thought after he saw after Jurassic Park, you know, oh, I could I could do the kid as CG. I could do like a like an animated boy. So huh. that was how he started working on uh, this, you know, working on this movie, working on AI, and um, that was it. He died. Yeah, but he was such a perfectionist. Yeah. I think he was waiting for the technology to get better. Yeah. So he could do it convincingly, but of course he didn't make it to two thousand one. He died in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. But I think uh, Eyes Wide Shut was a Pretty good swan song for uh, for Kubrick. I really like that movie. Yeah, um, it's funny. I but no one liked it. I remember uh, when this came out. I remember a lot of people hating it and not believing really? me when I told them I liked it. It was so weird. Uh, but uh, I, I yeah, I like the movie a lot. I mean, I think anybody that's in. Uh, relationship you know especially in maybe in a relationship that's kind of seeing a bit of uh maybe you've been in a relationship for a long time and maybe you're starting to take each other for granted or maybe you're taking your partner for granted and the idea of you know do you how well do you know this person and you know uh, i mean that that whole scene when they're smoking a joint in bed and you know odd thing to smoke a joint in the bedroom like that with your kids in the other room mm -hmm. I, I know that house smelled like well that room had to smell like weed mm -hmm. um but whatever that's neither here nor there so um <laughs> so that you know they're smoking weed and then um she starts feeling like this guy is taking her for granted. And she tells him, you know, you have no idea. One day I saw this sailor in an elevator and I wanted to fuck his brains out. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And just hearing that, this guy is confronted with how insecure he is. Mm-hmm. And this image of his wife getting railed by this sailor just haunts oh, him. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful and kind of uh, um, interesting to watch, you know, a real married couple kind of go through that on screen. Yeah. I think that's why he chose those two in particular. Yeah. It's a good choice. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to break up this marriage. <laughs> and, yeah, and lo, lo and behold, <laughs> it's like two years later, right? They, yep. Didn't they get divorced? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think uh, Kubrick sort of took them off the market for about a year. Yep. Setting was inc- an incredibly long shoot. Yep. But, you know, we're talking about Stanley Kubrick here. Of course, it's going to be a long shoot. But, I mean, when you saw the movie, when you finally saw the movie, did you did you think to yourself, oh, yeah, this is a year. This is definitely, it took a year to make this movie. Uh, no, it didn't. It really didn't. That's what I mean. That's bullshit. Yeah. That's fucking bullshit. I mean, I mean come on. I mean, is, is all that shooting necessary? No, this the thing. It wasn't. You don't need 60 takes of a dude walking through a fucking door. <laughs> uh, Stanley. Yeah, piece of shit. So, <laughs> so back to uh, 2001 and Space Odyssey. So uh, one, one of the last things I want to talk about um, sure. with the movie is the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Which I love. Opening with um, what is it, Richard Strauss? Um, his his um, his uh, song "Sunrise." It's called. I think I've ever heard. I mean, that does that song does sound like a sunrise. Yeah, it, it's it's really nice, really cool. And yeah. uh, the Blue Danube is oh boy, that is beautiful. Yeah. It's interesting that before that, science fiction spaceships always had like a whooshing sound, like you know, Starship Enterprise or Forbidden Planet, you know. But he he just let the music speak for itself because there's no sound in space. That's right. And and it's like a it's like a ballet. Yep. It really is. Um, and I thought it was really neat, really cool. Well, because I thought you would you would imagine that um, to dock a ship in space to have it um, have the the gravitational orbit synchronize uh, of the space station synchronized with the ship, and um, having to barrel roll in order to maintain um, um, equal bearing with the docking bay, um, you know that those are things that you would um, definitely consider to be played out in real life you know uh, outside of this movie mm-hmm. if this were to you know if this were to really exist yeah. um, and it's uh, like a dance yes absolutely not boring whereas yeah and it's not I, and i would think and i don't know whether or not it's dated i don't know if um unless you are interested in film a casual viewer would be bored to death watching 
um, a ship dock. Yes, considering all the uh, science fiction movies that that we're exposed to now, it's like maybe someone may actually get restless watching this, and I could I could see that. Well, because they're spaceships, and not one of them shoots lasers or <laughs> you know does barrel rolls in space or you know. They're all transport machines. <laughs> Just <laughs> take people places. That's all these. That's all these spaceships do. There, there are no laser guns. There's nobody shooting. Uh, it's just talking and, <laughs> and flying. Yeah, you stuff. definitely have to be in the right frame of mind to watch this. And I think, yeah. uh, and I think watching this in the theater would probably help a lot. Yeah, a lot of people have tried to do 2001. I don't think anyone else can really do 2001 because there aren't many people that can do Stanley Kubrick, you know, except for maybe um, a Roy Anderson who made a movie called Songs from the Second Floor. If you haven't seen mm -hmm. that, that's wonderful. Okay. Um, but he's a kind of, he's a director that just kind of, like, he sets up these really masterful, beautiful shots. He puts the camera down and just lets the actors go to work. And the shots have a lot of depth. There's a lot going on. Uh, it's, he's a wonderful director. Um, okay. He directed a lot of commercials in the 80s, actually. Uh, he has a very uh. distinct look. Like, if you, once you see his, once you see his, his look... Then you're like, oh, I remember, you'll, you'll totally remember seeing his commercials. Stanley Kubrick doesn't really get too close to his characters. He's more just kind of observing odd human behavior more yes. than anything else. You hit the nail on the head right there. There's like a very detached way of uh, of how the story unfolds. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Uh, it's like... You really don't. You really don't really sympathize with any of the human characters. Ironically enough, it's the uh, it's it's uh, Hal that you actually have any real sympathy for. Or but, maybe um, he has more sympathy for Hal than he has for the rest of the characters. Yeah, he finds the humanity in the machine. Yeah, and Kubrick wasn't always that way. I thought he was a very humanistic. A storyteller, especially in his early films. But after 2001, he did Clockwork Orange, which was very brutal and really savage. Yeah. Barry and then Barry Lyndon, which I didn't care for. Mm. Uh, and in The Shining, it's like then he, he started he started kind of warming up again towards The Shining. <laughs> the shining, I, I, you find the shining to be warm, huh? Uh, <laughs> or relative to his other work? I mean, the shining as well is very cold and and very distant. You 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 kind of you don't even really get drawn into his madness more than you're just kind of watching this guy lose his shit. You don't even feel sorry for him because he he breaks his son's arm because he has anger issues. Mm -hmm. You know, so you don't even feel sorry for him. You mostly feel sorry for the family, mostly Danny, maybe. Play with us, Danny. Maybe that's the point. Maybe you were not supposed to empathize or even side with Jack Nicholson's character. So what do you yeah. give um, this, uh, this uh, I mean, is it, is it a sacrilege to ask me to ask you to give a numerical grade to a Stanley Kubrick film? Yeah, <laughs> oh, this one, I think it's, um, I think it's fairly easy. I think I would give it a seven. It loses points because uh, the ending is just so darn ambiguous. <laughs> and I think they could have easily cut off about, 20 minutes in the third act in that last act when he goes to Jupiter and then like you see all these colors it was it was just unintelligible for me so uh, and I and even I got restless and, and you know me I'm such a big Kubrick fan but it's hard to sit through so uh, I'd give it a 7 because it's got great set design and 
I just love the overall feel of it, but not that last part. How about you? Um, I, I liked it more than you did. Um, I'd probably wow. give it uh, an eight and a half, maybe a nine. And again, because, you know, for me, I'm a science fiction nerd. I love science fiction movies, always have. Uh-huh. And this is the most serious science fiction film, I think, or one of the most serious science fiction films I think I've ever seen. And it's almost a science fiction art film. Yeah. You know, it probably does not care too much about its audience, uh, more than it does about showing you this story. And mm-hmm. but I guess it doesn't care if you don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um and kind of like Dune. Yeah. But even Dune, Dune is um, not as Dune is pretty logical in, in its in its storytelling. I mean, you can it it spells out the story for you a hell of a lot more than this film does. Um, mm-hmm. Two thousand one, you have to work for it, and it will take you a few times of watching it, um, maybe before you can really understand i mean especially if you're going in cold you've never seen it before and you're just letting it wash over you yeah you're you're it's an experience you don't really know what's happening more than it's just something is happening to you and it's you know when you start watching it you know more and more certain things start sticking out for you and it starts to make more sense upon repeat viewings. I've seen this movie a bunch of times. I dig it every time. It's like watching a, a really big budget silent film. Yeah. You don't see a spaceships married with classical music much. Yeah. Um, and the... it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think... Uh... I think any other movie that tries to do it that way is only going to be imitating 2001. Yep. So this is the one and only. Yep. We covered a whole range of topics. Yeah. We went through the Stargate on this one. It was um, the whole uh, <laughs> colors and just tangents and all this stuff until we've now ended up in the... Uh, neoclassical black and white room where you get to watch each other get old until we die (laughs) and on that note ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening to the Cinepod movie cast i am chuck conyers i am jose joel's and um stanley kubrick god rest his soul maybe (laughs) i don't think he believes in that (laughs) know why Hal did what he did? Yes, it wasn't his fault. Whose fault was it? Yours. Mine? Yours. In going through Hal's memory banks, I discovered his original orders. You wrote those orders? Discovery's mission to Jupiter was already in the advanced planning stages when the first small monolith was found on the moon and sent its signal towards Jupiter. By direct presidential order, the existence of that monolith was kept secret. So? So as the function of the command crew, Bowman and Poole, was to get Discovery to its destination, it was decided that they should not be informed. The investigative team was trained separately and placed in hibernation before the voyage began. Since Hal was capable of operating Discovery without human assistance, it was decided that he should be programmed to complete the mission autonomously in the event the crew was incapacitated or killed. He was given full knowledge of the true objective 
and instructed not to reveal anything to Bowman or Poole. He was instructed to lie. What are you talking about? I didn't authorize anyone to tell Hal about the monolith. The directive is NSC 342-23, top secret, January 30, 2001. NSC, National Security Council, the White House. I don't care who it is. The situation was in conflict with the basic purpose of Hal's design, the accurate processing of information without distortion or concealment. He became trapped. The technical term is an H. Mobius loop, which can happen in advanced computers with autonomous goal-seeking programs. The goddamn White House. I don't believe it. I was told to lie by people who find it easy to lie. Hal doesn't know how. So he couldn't function. He became paranoid. Those sons of bitches. I didn't know. I didn't know.